Well, open your Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at three verses, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. And I want to confess to you that I had to repent before preaching this morning. And I happily do that uh, in my desire to obey the Lord. But, But after giving us some of the clearest teaching in all the Bible on sanctification, Paul gives us another command here to obey in in verse 14. In fact, verses 12 through 18, you, you have an application of Christ's humility. Christ's ultimate example of humility is applied in two areas in verses 12 through 18. One in our pursuit of holiness, which we saw last time, verses 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you do that, you're able to do that because God is the one who is at work in you, both creating the desire and the ability to do of of His good pleasure. The second way that you you apply the humility of Christ is is our proof of it, proof of that holiness, your pursuit of holiness to in in a corrupt world, which is what we're going to look at today in verses 14 and, and 16. So we saw uh, working out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling. The holiness that we're supposed to uh, pursue has two um, ingredients, indispensable ingredients. It's our dependent work and God's, uh, or our dependent effort, I should say, and God's determined work. Without either of those, you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow without the Lord undergirding your effort, and you're not going to grow without, without your effort. And so in verse 14 through 16, Paul now gives specific instructions about how to do that. He says that you're to do that by by ceasing to complain. If you've ever tried to do exactly what verse 14 commands, you understand the the title, the the hardest command in the Bible to obey. You also understand why I repented before I preached this morning, especially in the current climate in which we, uh, we live. This is one of the, the most um, difficult and wide-reaching commands that you'll find in the, in the New Testament. And what makes it even more difficult to, to obey is, is we've domesticated the sin of complaining to the point that we don't even recognize whenever we do it even though it's revolting to the Lord and even though it's the opposite of growing in, in holiness. It's disastrous to, to our growth. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins and, and his title goes right along with, the, with this moral numbness. He says there's certain sins that we commit so often and so regularly we, we lose perspective on, on how unsuitable they are for, for us as, as Christians. And, and complaining is one of those kinds of of sins. Um, some people have a master's degree in it. Uh, our reaction to, to grumbling and complaining, grumbling in our heart and the complaining or the arguing that comes out of our mouth, it should be like, like walking into your friend's house and finding their two-year-old on, on the floor curled up with a pit viper or, or maybe passing your, your, your neighbor on a narrow sidewalk while they're, while, they're, while they're walking something on a leash and you look down and it's a, it's a skunk. It, it should be something that, that repulses you, that you should avoid, that should shock you. But, but instead, it's become so normal in our lives, in the lives of those around us, we don't, even, we don't even recognize it, we don't even see it's a danger. 
And so Paul's command tells us in order to be holy, if you want to grow in holiness, you must stop. There's an added difficulty besides it being normalized in, in, the, in, in the Christian world. Not only is complaining an acceptable sin to Christians, it's the prevailing atmosphere of the world around us. I mean, it's in the water. Grumbling is in the water. I mean, we live in a society whose normal gripe setting is on level 10 because they're, they're self, self-indulgent. I'm sure you've probably heard the term a narcissist before, or you're narcissistic. Maybe someone has said that around you. But do you know where that term comes from? It actually comes from Greek mythology. Uh, narcissist was, a, was a, a teenage boy known for his beauty who walked by a pool of water and decided to get a drink, and, and he saw his own reflection in, in the water, and he became so entranced by his own reflection, he couldn't look away. And unable to leave the allure of his, of his own image, he eventually realized that, 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 that his love couldn't be reciprocated, so, so he killed himself, because he couldn't have the object of, of his affection. Um, try that for a kid's bedtime story, right? I mean, Dr. Seuss is probably uh, looking a little bit better. But we have a world like that. A society that's so in love with itself and so unable to find true satisfaction that that it's in self-destruct mode. It grumbles and complains about everything while it's doing it because it can't get what what, what what it desires. We raise children that that expect a little suffering in life, and then when it comes, they, they think life's being unfair. They need a good dose of Ecclesiastes. We tell them that they can be anything they want to be in life, but, but, but they don't have to sacrifice to gain it. No sacrifice, there's no duty, there's no courage, there's no anything. You can just be anything you want to be. We raise them in families that, that cater to their every whim and, and treat them like they're the most important people on the planet and then wonder why whenever they get older they expect everything to be handed to them. I mean, many young people today don't want to grow up because growing up means responsibility and, and they don't want responsibility because they're self-oriented. I mean, just ask anyone who works with children. Just ask a school teacher. Kids get in trouble in school, and the parent comes in and chews out the teacher for disciplining the child. How could you do that to Junior? Junior's never wrong, right? And all the teachers in here are sitting there going, yeah, I've been there. Don't grumble about it. You know what my mom did whenever I got in trouble at school? When I went to school, public school now, they still spanked us in, in public school. If I'd come home and complain about a teacher punishing me, my mother would ask, did I get spanked? And if I did, then I got one from her. You want to know how many times I played the blame the teacher game? One time. That's how many times I, I played it. And I never, ever questioned whether my mother loved me. Not one time. In fact, that she would do that proved to me how much that she, she loved me. Do you want to know what a, a generation looks like that's raised in all those ways that I just said to, to love itself without discipline? I mean, you don't have to guess. It's a culture that burns down cities and then blames the police. It's a culture that wants no barriers or boundaries, even biological ones like being born with a specific gender. It's a culture that's so rebellious it thinks it can redefine the perversity of fornication and homosexuality and call it something to be proud of. And when you take that self-indulgent society and that pers- the perspectives that are there and you bring it into the church, it's no wonder why nobody believes in the authority of Scripture. 
I mean, we've created entire churches catered around, designed around what people want rather than what God says. John MacArthur said, frankly, the church does much to feed complaining by continuing to propagate the, the self-esteem and self-fulfillment that feeds discontent. There's little loyalty, there's little thankfulness, there's little gratitude, and there's very little contentment. And sadly, what, what happens eventually is you're griping and grumbling and murmuring and discontent, which is really nothing more than blaming God because He's the one that ordained your circumstances. So just know who you're complaining against whenever you do. Human beings have been complaining since the garden. Adam complained about Eve. It's the woman that you gave me. Cain complained about Abel and his reward. The world complained about God before he destroyed it. Husbands complained about wives. Mothers about children. Israel complained about Moses and being in the wilderness. Saul complained to Samuel. The disciples complained to the Lord. And so with all of the grumbling, we understand why God commands us to stop it so we can grow. If you're busy grumbling and complaining, you're, you're not growing. I mean, really, when you put these two commands together, you might think of it this way. You may be doing everything to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You may be pursuing sanctification really hard. You're, you're coming to church. You're, you're obeying the first command here in verse 12 well. You're reading your Bible. You're tithing. You're serving. You're, you're not watching trash on TV. But maybe the reason that you're not growing is because you're complaining too much. So you need the second part. You should listen to God this morning. and You might see your spiritual growth take off like a rocket. Verses 14 through 16 is actually one long, complicated sentence of, of three verses. There's a command. It starts with this command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then what follows up is, is a purpose clause that, that gives explanations for why we're supposed to, you know, to, to obey that. When you put all of that together, you get four reasons to stop complaining. Number one, you should stop complaining because you're, you're commanded by God. Number two, it, you should stop complaining because it continues your sanctification. Number three, it commends you to the world... And number four, it corroborates the labor of your, of your faithful teachers. That's how he rounds that out in verse 16. And the first one's abundantly clear. If you didn't get that, you'll get them one at a time here. The first reason to stop complaining is you're, you're commanded by God. Look at the word, if you would, at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or, or disputing. And Paul gives the scope of the command. It, it covers all things, everything. And then he tells us the sort of complaining we're, we're not to... To do. So I said verse 12 is a general application. Verse 14 gets specific. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do it without grumbling and, and disputing. This just describes the attitude in which we were to work out our salvation or pursue holiness. We're, we're to do it without ever complaining. You put both of those together, that's how you imitate uh, our Lord. The opposite of fear and trembling is murmuring and complaining. And when you put it together, it's like saying the place to start working out your holiness may not be a new Bible study, but, but to stop being like grumbling Israelites. And the scope of the command here couldn't be, couldn't be broader. Paul says, do all things. This is where I found myself repenting. I don't think I am 
have a pattern of grumbling in my life. But when you put in there, do all things without grumbling, now I'm repenting, okay? Live your entire Christian life without complaining. Meaning everything involved in the process of sanctification or holiness. That means at home, that means in church, that means in the world, that means in your family, at school, at your job, everywhere and everything. That's the scope of, of this command. This is very similar to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10. And, and you know it well, our youth group gets, gets its name, 1031, from this verse. It says, whether you, then you, you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. It means whatever you do in life, even down to the most mundane and routine acts of like eating and drinking, and whatever you do in between, you glorify God. And the emphasis, both in 1 Corinthians 10 and this passage that's in front of us here in, in Philippians 2, is that, that you can't divide up the activities of life. It's to, it's to force us to, to realize that, that you can't compartmentalize. You can't say that, that this is secular and that's, that's sacred. This is the Christian part of my life over here, and this is not. It, I, I won't grumble and complain in church or in my, in, my, in my quiet time, but I have no problem calling somebody an idiot in the middle of lows. And it's okay to do that. Paul says... You, you, can't make that, you can't make that distinction. All things denies a compartmentalized Christianity. It disallows Sunday morning only salvation. And everything should be transformed by your new life in Christ and, and brought under His Lordship. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You've already bowed the knee, and so everything that, that, that is as part of your life is, is brought under, under Christ. And anything you should engage in, God says, should be done without grumbling or... We're arguing. And we don't do that, do we? Which is why the commands here in, in Philippians. This part was particularly convicting to me because I do find it easy to grumble about a person in front of me in 460 not driving well, even though I wouldn't think about grumbling in church. Um, I may use that insult in my heart in, in, in Lowe's, but I would never use the same, that same insult in here, and Paul will not let me or you make that type of division for two reasons. One is because God is in Lowe's just as well as He is in the middle of Timberlake Baptist Church. He sees all. He's in your car with you in, in, in 460. So God is, is, sees both places, reason you can't have the division. And, and indiscretion in one will eventually lead, lead to the other. If you develop a pattern of grumbling in your heart, outside of the church, eventually it will, it will make it its way inside because the source of complaining comes from an elevated heart. It actually comes from within. And you complain because you think that you deserve better. That's why the command is an application of the Lord's humility. Don't forget the, the, the fountainhead of, of these two commands. It goes all the way back to verse 5. Let this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And what attitude was that? It was an attitude of, of humility. So this command is, is hitched to that. And the reason that we grumble and complain is because we, we, we lack humility. We, we, we don't follow Christ's humility. His humility led him to obedience and service, which leads to God's glory and exalted joy. This goes back to verse 5. 
the exhortation to have a humble attitude, not to think too highly of yourself. And, and, when, and when you're humble, you, you obey this, this command. But, but when you're the center of your universe, then you're discontent and you're grumbling and, and, and you're complaining, and that, that's, what, that's what reigns. And again, you do that. I do that. And in one sense, that should discourage you because nobody wants to do that. In another sense, that the fact that God loves us enough to put a command like this in the Bible tells us that, that this is not the unpardonable sin. But it is one that you need to remove if you want to grow. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. That's the scope. And if that wasn't weighty enough, he, he defines for us what what sort of complaining that we are forbidden to do. He gives the scope of the command, and, and then he, he gives the sort of complaining that, that, we're to, that we're forbidden to do. Look at verse 14 again. Do all things, scope, without grumbling or disputing. Two words. To grumble, murmur, same word, or to dispute or argue. The first word grumbling refers to whispering complaints. It, it's talking in secret about someone. It's, it's to express dissatisfaction in your heart or, or under your breath. It's, it's to make a negative comment about somebody behind their, behind their back or, or about a circumstance. It's, it's what you do whenever you leave church and you talk about someone that you don't care for or, or the car conversation that you have with yourself whenever you leave work. The other word is, is different. It's, it's arguing, which means quarreling or, or, or debating. It raises doubts. It's, it's where we get our word dialogue. It means here talking whenever you shouldn't, though. It's the dialogue that's filled with complaints. MacArthur said it's an easy way to tell these two words apart is the first word is emotional bellyaching, and the second is an intellectual debate with God. It's interesting, the word grumbling here is, a, is an onomatopoeia word that, that sounds like what you do, uh, gungusmas. It's, maybe a, a counterpart is an English word to murmur, murmur. You're murmuring about something. You're doing something. The word sounds like what, what, what you're doing. It's what Yosemite Sam does when he's walking away from Bugs Bunny. <laughs> It's the sound that your heart makes whenever you protest your circumstances, but you don't speak words. And grumbling is sin because it's, a, it's an emotional protest of God's providence, specifically the circumstances that He's chosen for you. It's a negative response to anything unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing arising from our circumstances. And the underlying basis is, is we feel it's undeserved. And, and so we're expressing that in our heart. I mean, doesn't that person know that I'm in a hurry? Murmur, murmur, murmur. I mean, doesn't God know that I'm trying as hard as I can? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Which, by the way, you're not trying as hard as you can. The Bible says that you haven't resisted under the shedding of blood. It's just what I say or you say whenever we want to justify our heart response. Grumbling is the self-centered air horn that sounds when we conclude life is not serving us. It's an expression of unbelief. Because God is the one who's sovereign over our circumstances, including the hardships. I mean, think for a minute the things that we grumble about, lest you doubt that this is a, a domesticated sin. 
Think about what we grumble about. Our coffee from Joe Beans didn't have the exact amount of cream in it. I mean, I come here every single day or every single week. I mean, she knows exactly the amount of cream I like in that. She only put one splint in there today. Never mind we drove up in our own car and we had enough money to pay somebody else to make our coffee for us rather than doing it. I mean, the grocery store ran out of our favorite ice cream bars. Doesn't the guy know that he needs to keep that stocked? <laughs> our direct TV goes down on our 65-inch 4K TV when we want to watch our favorite show. MacArthur said some people complain about the high cost of rent. Well, maybe you'd rather be a pavement dweller in Calcutta. They don't pay rent. They're born and they live and they die on the pavement. The only thing they have to worry about is to find a rag that they can put under their head whenever they go to sleep. See, it's all perspective, isn't it? While these kinds of horrors going around the world, he said, we throw tantrums because we got seated at a poorly located table in a fancy restaurant or, or we're frustrated because we can't lose 10 pounds. See why I had to repent? We're the most indulged society in the world, and we're the most discontent. We would do well to remember Lamentations 3.39. This is the underlying verse to apply to grumbling or complaining. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? What do we have to complain about? We're, we're wicked sinners. We deserve hell. And anything beyond that is, is grace. Paul says, don't grumble in your heart about anything. He also uses a, a, a second command. He says, don't, don't argue. That's the grumbling, what's happening in your heart. Emotional belly aching. Here's the other word, disputes. If the first one's more an emotional response, this one's verbal. It's, it's, a, it's a questioning response or an intellectual one, ultimately directed at, at God. It's the questioning session about something in your life or to question the goodness of a circumstance. And it usually involves three letters or one little word. Why? Why is this happening? Why did this take place? As I said, it's where we get our English word dialogue, but it's got a negative emphasis. It's, it's not just under your breath like the first one. This one's in your mouth. And don't miss the progression here of these two words when you put them together, which is why Paul puts them together. It starts in the heart. Grumbling starts in the heart where you sit as the evaluator of circumstances and then a person begins to grumble under their breath. It begins to, to boil, the car, uh, cauldron begins to, to boil and then, and then someone who murmurs or grumbles uh, will, will ultimately eventually question God and, or argue and dispute with Him. Someone who continues to, to murmur or grumble will eventually take their case before the Lord. I mean, the most famous example of that is Old Testament example of the Israelites. They grumbled in the wilderness. Numbers 14 and 16. We won't look at all of them, but you know it well. Look at what they did. The Bible says Israel in Numbers 14 too, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congreg uh, congregation and said to them, would we have died in the land of Egypt or would we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the, by the swords. It goes on. Our wives and our little ones will, will become plunder. Would it be, wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? So let us appoint a leader to return to Egypt. They came out of slavery. Walked across the, the Red Sea on dry land. 
They spoke publicly about Moses and Aaron and, and privately about God. Uh, Psalm 106, verses 24 and 25 says, Then they despised the pleasant land. They didn't believe in His word. They grumbled in their tents under breath. They didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. And God not only heard them, He punished them. I don't have this one up there, but in Numbers 11, 1 says, you know, The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them. Some outside the, on the outskirts of the camp. How serious does God take grumbling and complaining? He consumes some of the Israelites. Don't complain because the Lord is listening. James says... Every time you do it, you're doing it in the presence of God. James 5, 9, Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, because the judge is standing at the door. One verse says that James's emphasis there of the judge standing at the door is like whenever you're, you're a little kid and, and you get in trouble and you go to your room and your brother or sister's in the room and, and you walk in the door and you're upset over, over your punishment and you just start giving mom or dad what for to your little brother or sister. Dad did this, and I can't believe that, and they sent me to the room, and da-da-da, and all of a sudden, you see the look on your, on your sibling's face change, and, and you turn around, and Dad's standing in the doorway listening to everything that you're saying. When you grumble and complain, you do it in the presence of the Lord. He's standing right at the, jo uh, right at the door. He says, number one, don't do it because it's commanded. And then he gives us some other reasons. These will probably go a, a, a lot faster. Now, I could give the invitation right here, couldn't I? <laughs> Let me give you some reasons. Look at verse 15. Second reason you stop complaining is it continues your sanctification. Verse 15. So that, there's the command, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Why? So that you will, you, what's the result? You'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul emphasizes your character and in a contrast here with the, with the world. He attaches the command to your character and to the world's crookedness. The reason you shouldn't grumble, and I shouldn't grumble or argue, is so that, Paul says, that you'll prove to be blameless and pure children of God. Notice he says you prove to be that. Which are without fault in a warped and, and, and crooked world. It, it's a proving, and then there's a contrast that, that's there. I mean, this is a purpose clause that, that causes us as Christians to fulfill our mission in the world by, by cleaning up our complaining. That's how we become distinct. That's how... We become more like Christ. G. Walter Hansen said, when, uh, when Christian speech is laced with complaints and personal attacks, we, we lose our distinctive quality as children of God in a world characterized by the same kind of negative tone. He uses three adjectives here. It sets a really high standard for, for us. He said we should be blameless children, innocent children, and, and children that are above reproach. Blameless, we're means without defect, innocent, pure, unmixed with sin, and then we're unindictable. Nobody can point the finger to us. We're to have no blame, no flaw, and no fault. And the verse says that we're to prove to, uh, or to give evidence of that, give evidence of being this kind of, of people. And the closer that we get to that target, the more we'll be like the Lord. You see how this is connected to our growth in holiness? 
When you stop grumbling and complaining, it advances your sanctification. You prove yourself to be followers of Christ. You prove yourself to be very different. It's a contrast to, to the world. You grow to be more like Jesus. Did, did our Lord ever complain? No, not one time. Did He have reason to? Oh, you better believe He did. He never complained, not once, and neither should you. Neither should I. He lamented sin and pain and, and evil. He kicked religious hypocrites in the teeth. He, he wasn't a milk toast, but he never argued with the Father's plan. He never murmured about his circumstances. And when you obey this command, you become the kind of child that God wants you to be. And, and that makes you very different from the world. There's your character. And, and then it's in the midst of the world's crookedness. And the world is a crooked place, isn't it? Verse 15. You're children of God above reproach in the midst of a in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul says when, when you stop complaining, you're contrasted to the world. And he describes the world in two ways. He says it's crooked and it's it's perverse. It's deviant. Crooked's where we get the, the term for scoliosis. It's almost a, a transliteration. When the spine is, is crooked, he says the world's spine is crooked. It's, he also says it's, it's distorted. The unbelieving world is not the way that it's supposed to be. Solomon told us that in Ecclesiastes. It's abnormal. It's misaligned with God's standards. It's, and it's purposely that way. That's the second word. They pursue that. It's deviant because it chooses to be so. It pursues perversity. That's why all of its forces work so hard to convince you that, that, that the worldly way is normal because you know it's not. The law of God is written on your heart. You know that there's a right and there's a wrong and, and, and the world is bent and crooked and, and it, it, it's deviant. You have God's law so you, so you know that and, and so the, the world constantly has to reinforce its deviance through distractions and pleasure and media and movies and in systems, it says this is normal and that's normal. And, and yet, no matter how hard they try or how much they promote, deep down inside, you know it's not right. It's an evidence of God. It's evidence that you're created in His image, even though you're marred by the fall. And it's from this crooked and perverse generation. We're in the midst of it. And, and, and that crooked and perverse generation needs to be saved. Which is the third reason to stop complaining. It commends you and the gospel to the world. If you would verse into verse 15 and begin of verse 16 again. You're children of God above reproach. Here's the world that you're in. You're in the world, not of the world. It's crooked. It's perverse. It's not just a little. It's a whole generation. It's, it's everyone. Among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast... The word of life, or holding forth the word of, of life. You should stop complaining, complaining because it commends you to the, to the world. In your testimony, you're above reproach. In, in a crooked world, you appear as lights. Your, your testimony is like a light. And, and, and then in your testifying, you're holding forth the word of life. And God says, He's left believers in the world. And you're not to be of it, you're to be distinct. But in it, you appear as lights. 
Stop complaining because it's command. Stop complaining because it, it furthers your sanctification. And then he gives us the reason or the purpose. It's so that you have a good testimony and so that you'll evangelize effectively. You can't evangelize without a good testimony. You can't evangelize, you can't tell people the gospel or share the gospel with people if, if your mouth's always full of grumbling and complaining. I mean, the reason that you want to obey this command is, is so that you might become children without fault, and, and you do that because you're a witness to a world that's just the opposite. Or maybe I can say it this way. Why, why should you try to obey the hardest verse in the Bible? It's because you want to win others to Christ. I mean, when you think about what Paul is saying here, in the midst of the, of the Philippians are in the midst of the Roman world, and it's bad, and all of that. I mean, Paul says if you're truly concerned about the direction of the culture around you and you want to change it, the best place you can start is to stop complaining. Because that makes you distinct. And when you're distinct, then, then they'll listen to your message or you'll hold forth the, the, the word of life. It gives you a platform. Paul says the greatest witness to a crooked and perverse world is a church full of humbly contented people who do not grumble or complain. We should be a trustingly peculiar people. I mean, when you go to a jewelry store, I've used this example about the reason that you, when you share the gospel, you, you give the wrath of God along with the with the salvation of God or the forgiveness of God. Don't start with Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life because, and that you need to be saved because they don't know what they need to be saved from. You start with, you're a sinner. The, the wrath of God abides upon you. Then that makes the gospel good news. Well, in that scenario, the gospel is, is like a diamond and the wrath of God's like the like the black velvet backdrop. You could use that here, that same analogy here. When you go into a, a jewelry store, wherever you go, there are two things that are that's consistent. One, there'll be a light that, that's shining on all of the rings in the in the little little booths there, the little uh, display cases. You want to make them look as good as possible, so you can buy the most expensive one. And then there's also a backdrop, something behind it to highlight it, a light, and then a and then something to make it distinct. Because one of the best ways to see the beauty of a diamond is to lay it on a piece of darker cloth so it can reflect the light, it can refract the light that, that, that's, that's shining. And the church is contrasted with a warped and crooked generation that it's part of. And, and inside the church and outside the church should look very different. And this surrounding culture that's warped and morally bent and twisted and unscrupulous and dishonest and crooked... Departing from moral standards, if the church keeps itself distinct, then it will, will shine like stars in, in the night, Paul says. Christians are to be like heavenly stars in a dark world. Light and darkness. They shine, meaning they become visible. They're distinct. Maybe I can say it this way. If your message, the message that we have for the world, is that is that you're crooked and God can make you straight, but you're just as crooked as the world is, then, then no one's going to believe you. Grumbling and complaining and dissatisfied with life is a poor testimony. So Paul starts there. I mean, come to Jesus Christ, He will change you, yet I'm no different than you. 
But you can think of that person that led you to Christ. I always think of Theta Lewis, who's different. And beat you over head with the Bible. You probably knew a lot of what they could have told you anyway. And yet there's something distinct about them. Someone who rests in God as the sweetness of Christ, who, who trusts God in all things. They have, they have no fear. They're, they appear as distinct as a spotlight shining in the midst of a cave. And Paul says that's the way you're supposed to be in your testimony. But that's not all. Look at what else he says in verse 16. You shine as a light, but then you hold something. You hold fast, verse 16, the word of life, holding fast the word of life. He says, not grumbling will give you a good testimony, but, but it will also motivate you to share the gospel with others. And he explains how you, be, you become blameless children who shine more fully. He says you, you hold forth the, the word of, of life. There's two possibilities of, of interpretation here, and I think both of them make the same point. Either this idea is to hold firmly, hold something in your hand firmly, or hold out something, hold forth. You're either holding it firmly, which is a defensive posture, or you're holding it out. You're offering it. And notice it says it, it's the word of life. One is offensive and one is defensive. To hold firmly into something is defensive, but what you're holding is the word of life, which is evangelistic. The word that, that brings life. I mean, you realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to bring a dead sinner to life? I mean, you're thinking of someone that you need to witness to, maybe a family member, somebody that's really, really far from the Lord. And you look at their life on the outside and you look at their attitude and you think they are so far from, from Christ. Do you realize that the gospel itself has the ability to bring them from wherever they are to save like that? It has that kind of power? I mean, Paul uses the example in, in Corinth, the example of creation, where God said, let there be light. And there was light. Light shines in the darkness. The gospel is the light. And he says here the church needs to maintain its, its grasp on truth, meaning remain at a specific place of orthodoxy. The church waffles and wavers on the word of God and the standards that are there. That puts out its light. But the church also needs to hold it up and to proclaim it so people in darkness can be drawn to it and they see their sin. So... Hold firmly to the truth allows you to be light in a, as the culture gets darker and darker. And holding out the truth allows you to shine a spotlight in a, in a specific direction. But complaining turns off the light completely. Whatever you're holding to and whatever you're holding out. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to become crooked and lose your testimony. And you don't want to fail to witness because you're too busy, too busy complaining. Let me tell you one of the ways that I convicted myself this past week. Besides the compartmentalization of, of finding it easy to, to grumble about somebody on 460 or Lowe's, but never think about doing that in the church, in, in hearing all things or everything, God doesn't give me that kind of wiggle room. I asked myself the question while I was preparing. Wow, I guess I do grumble more than I think I did. If I added up all of the time that I spent grumbling or complaining over the past month, 
And I took that same amount of time and I put it to holding forth the word of life, sharing Jesus with people. Uh, how many more people would know about Christ? And I was very convicted by that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that things are right and you should just go along to get along. I signed John MacArthur's statement about government overreach and you should too. I'm not saying that, that the world's not crooked. It's perverse. It's, it, it's here. What I am saying is I can't let it consume me and turn my heart inward to a grumbling and complaining mess that keeps my eyes off of Christ and fails to put my eyes on sinners. I mean, long after COVID is gone, there's a heaven and a hell and people are really going to one of those two places. And so I don't want to grumble or complain. I want to be a light. And I know you do too. Let me give you the last one here. The fourth reason to stop complaining is it corroborates the labor of your teachers. Through rejoicing and through their reward. If you would at verse 16. Holding fast or holding forth the, the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. And there's our Ecclesiastes word. You, you have uh, two applications here. Through rejoicing, glory in the day of Christ, and through Christ's reward. Paul says, so his labor wouldn't be in vain, being empty, lacking reward. He gives a final motivation to the Philippians for them remaining blameless children and obeying the, this command to pursue holiness and to, and to stop grumbling, stop complaining. It's very personal. Paul says... Do that, if you do that, then I will be able to boast on the, on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain. It's a very pastoral. As one person put it, stop complaining for the sake of God, stop complaining for the sake of the gospel, and now stop complaining for the sake of your pastor. Amen. <laughs> Faithful teachers who labor among you, Paul says, they study and they teach and they discipline and they shepherd by giving their lives to the ministry. They do that for the glory of Christ. And they do that to hear, well done. They labor uh, to form Christ in you. And they do that because you are Christ's chosen bride. You're the church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven two, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that, that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. He's talking about the church. It's his desire. It's so much he, he loves it. He wants it to be without spot, not wrinkle. It's a pastor's job to feed and protect the flock, but the flock's the Lord's. It's a delegated responsibility. And on the day that I present you to Christ, I, I want to have a reason to glory or rejoice because you're blameless and you're, and you're pure. And I can't do that if I present a grumbling and complaining church because I failed to live out this verse or failed to preach it faithfully. And so Paul says, if you want to show gratitude to, to your pastors, your Sunday school teachers for their care for you, then obey this passage. Your obedience corroborates or confirms their labor. They equip you and preach it to you. You then apply it. And when those two things come together, 
God's work happens, and so on the day of Christ, you get credit for obeying it. They get confirmation of their faithful work. And Paul says the reward will come in the day of Christ. That's the second. I rejoice whenever you obey the word. And I also rejoice in fruit on the day of Christ. You hear a lot about the day of the Lord in Revelation. That's about judgment. The day of Christ is for rewards. And on the day of Christ, Paul says, I, I want to know by my reward from your obedience that I did not run or labor for no reason. The best thing a church member can do to bless their faithful pastors is to live out the truths that he taught them. As John says, I have no greater joy than to know or see my children walk in truth. And so the Lord will reward him on the final day. And so if you want to bless your pastors, trust the Lord without complaining. He'll reward you with, with souls and, and your own reward will, will stand before him and your teachers will, will as well. Four reasons. Stop complaining. You're commanded by God. It continues your sanctification. It commends you to the world. You're different. It's distinct. And it corroborates the labor of your faithful pastors. So I told you I had to repent before I preached the sermon. Do you need to repent after I preach the sermon? You should bow your heads. You say, I do. Again, don't be overly discouraged and be convicted. Being convicted means being convinced that this is wrong. Being discouraged is that there's no hope and, and that's not biblical. There's always hope in Christ. The reason that these commands are there is because God loves us enough to do exactly what my mother did, correct us. Hebrews tells us that that's an evidence that you're His. You say, yeah, I do. I need to repent. How do I do that? Well, remember the context. It's the humility of Christ. So how do you humble yourself? You, you remember the Lamentations verse. You remember that you're a sinner. You remember that you, what you are. And remember what Christ has, has done for you. So remember that you're a sinner and then remember your Savior. Remember that, that He was humble. Remember that that, that he, he had everything, and he laid it aside to, to come and die for you. He was obedient, even to the point of death. And that's the way you do it. You remember you're a sinner, and that you remember you're a Savior. And then as a sinner, you come to that same Savior, and you confess the sin of grumbling and complaining, and you need, tell the Lord you need to repent. And then you ask Him, and then that same gracious Savior washes you clean of all of your sin. And if you never come to Christ, if you've never done that to begin with, if He's not your Lord, then you don't even have any power to do this. And God can change that. You say, oh, I'm far. You don't know what I've been doing. No, I don't. But God does. That's why He has you here this morning. But I do know the power of the gospel. You can take a Saul and make him a Paul. You can take somebody like me 
make him a follower of Christ. And it can happen to you as well. If you'll bow the knee, you'll trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Father, thank you for your word, how clear it is. We confess how easy it is to compartmentalize and disobey this command. Help us to be distinct in a crooked and perverse generation. Help us to hold up and hold out the word which brings life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for loving us enough to correct us in Jesus' name. Amen.